Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to our table gathering. This first one, Happy New Year, everyone, 2021, January 3rd. We're glad that you're with us in this live Zoom format or however you join us um, around the world in the days ahead through our podcast. We're glad that you're with us as we begin a brand new teaching series, continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, where we were during our Advent Called series, um, excuse me, our Advent Unexpected series. Our new series is called Called, and we're going to be investigating the call of key individuals throughout Scripture, First and Second Testament. And so today we'll be in Matthew chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bible there to follow along Matthew chapter 3, either print form or digital form on your, on your computer or smartphone, And our text this week is going to introduce and describe to us the calling of a man named John the Baptist. And he must be important because all of the Gospels feature him. Each of the Gospels positions him as uh, a voice, and in quotations, a voice crying in the wilderness. And our specific text today in Matthew chapter 3 kind of expands it. It's bigger than some of the other gospel accounts, and it includes uh, what we might say is a rather strong rebuke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees during his early ministry. So in Matthew chapter 3, that's where we're going to be reading today. And we know there's a there's a pretty old saying that goes something along the lines of familiarity breeds fill in the blank. Contempt. Contempt, right? Now, I'm hoping that when we're reading the scriptures, we don't think that the familiarity of scripture leads to contempt of scripture. But I would argue that sometimes familiarity means we gloss over, we we kind of pass over things thinking, hey, we know what that's like, and we know what this text says. And I want us to be thinking as we look through today, throughout this text, and we're going to break it down into uh, a couple of manageable sections. But I want us to be thinking about what might have been going through the minds of the people in that day and time. Our familiarity, I'm suggesting, with the text might keep us from noticing how, can I use the word strange, how unusual or strange John the Baptist probably ought to seem to us. And maybe even from recognizing, you know, the kinds of questions that we should be asking of the text before we even really dig down too deep. So I want us to be listening to a text that's probably familiar to most of us, at least if we grew up in the church. It's part of our lectionary series, our former lectionary. Every three years we would go through and this would be one of the texts we would deal with in year A. But I want us to make sure that we're trying to listen at least to the best of our ability with some fresh ears so that once we hear it and see it again, that um, as we dig into it, maybe we'll have um, some fresh new insights from what we're supposed to take from it here, you know, 2000 years after the events. But before we do that, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Would you join me as we uh, ask God's blessing on our time? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this unique, now more common format that we do here at the Zoom gatherings. We thank you that we are able to connect in this way and technology is allowing us to do that. We thank you that your spirit is still present in the midst and amongst this gathering. We pray that you would allow us to be open to hear that which you would have for us today and that your Holy Spirit might be our teacher in the midst of all of this. For we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 3 
and I'm going to break it down into a couple sections. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we'll read 5 and 6, and finally we'll read 7 through 12, because I think these are the natural divisions, okay? So Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 4. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, announcing, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. He was the one of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locust and wild honey. So Matthew opens up with in those days. Now, since we spent the last three Sundays in Matthew's chapter one and two, we might be forgiven for thinking that John appears in the wilderness when Jesus was still a small child. But as we read further into the chapter in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll realize and we'll kind of revise that thought. We're, we're clearly, Matthew is clearly jumping ahead in time, likely in the neighborhood of 30 or so, 28 or so to 30 years ahead of time. So he jumps from his telling of the nativity into this more detailed description of the forerunner of Christ. So John the Baptist seems to have been a fairly popular figure, not just from what we know from the scripture, but historically he's known for carrying, uh, having a great crowd following him. Now, why do you think that might have been the case? Why would something like John the Baptist preaching repentance and all of that, why do you think he would bring and draw such and track such a large following? Any thoughts? Uh, did Isn't it uh, recorded that people thought he was the Messiah? Oh, I guess it's possible that there was some thought maybe that he was the Messiah rather than the one pointing to the Messiah. Okay, possible. Good. Other thoughts? Maybe because it was a new idea. Because of what, Erica? It was a new idea. Hmm. What part was new, do you think? Well, kind of like when you're hearing somebody share a message, like it's something that's trending in the culture, kind of. Hmm. Like this is what people are starting to do now. They're repenting either if you've already heard of the Messiah coming or or it's a new idea. I got you. So it's this idea that you see a crowd of people doing something like, oh, I wonder what they're doing. And you kind of go over there and before you know it, it's like you said, I like it. It's trending. It's trending on Twitter. It's trending. Yeah. I think you're dealing with the weariness of the grind of the Roman Empire. Ooh. Yeah, you want to you want to expand it just a little bit more, Jay? What's that? Can you expand just a little bit more? Um, you know, he's talking about you know John the Baptist's message is one of hope that's coming. Mm -hmm. You're talking about several generations. You know, they've been living, I think, several generations underneath the heel of the Roman Empire. So, you know, the sense of hope is not in them. They're they're living in a very oppressed society. I mean, hence the hope of Jesus being a military savior by a lot of them. Got it. Wasn't yes. the case, but. 
Yeah. Yeah, I would I would actually add on to that. It wasn't even just the the empire itself. Uh, notice he's not in the synagogue preaching repent. Um, he's moved out of the established. Um, basically saying, even looking at what's happening in the church, that's not doing it. That's not what that's not what real religion looks like or relationship looks like. You had to go out to the wilderness, following the pattern of David going out to the wilderness. Everybody going out to the wilderness to get back to basics. Oh, I like that. Yeah, he he fulfills a lot of the prophet kind of checklists. <laughs> you know, a little bit. A little bit kooky, just a little, you know, a little out there, spends a lot of time alone. Uh, so he fulfills a lot of the prophet stuff. And, you know, if he's got prophecies even spoken about him that he's fulfilling, you know, that gives people hope as well, you know, for that maybe uh, freedom from the Roman Empire. Yeah, sure. To bounce off of Dan saying about the, the prophet, he's he dresses just like Elijah did. With, with the camel hair and the whatever tied around his waist thingy. So he, he would have looked and smelled like Elijah. Yeah, I like that you guys have hit both sides. When when I was listening to Jay, it sounded like Jay was kind of maybe more latching on, that the people were latching on more to the kingdom is here piece. And then I hear some of you others commenting, like Luther and others, like, okay, so the repentance piece, it's we're going to have to go back to basics. We're going to have to get out of what we're doing right now, right? And so... In some ways, I think it's probably both of those, depending upon the individual person that is being, is the attractive piece. But specifically, what would have made a message like repent or change your ways, the kingdom of heaven is near, why would it be appealing to the people in that day, that idea of repenting specifically, repenting because the kingdom is appearing? Anyone? They were still seeking the Messiah and his arrival. Okay. It's true. It's Excellent. concrete. It's concrete. It, it is something that they can say, okay, here's something. If we do this, then dot, dot, dot. I see. Yeah. The if then piece, maybe the reason that God's been silent for 400 years and Following up on what Jay said, we've been locked in the under the, you know, the boot or heel of Rome is because we've been such a horrible group and we need to corporately repent. And so not so much that the repentance part is so exciting because of what you have to go through, but that the end result might be that it would encourage this Messiah, maybe who's been waiting to come. Yeah. You get that sense? Good. Yeah. Well, I think, like you said, it, like there had been 400 years of silence, so the people were probably just excited to hear anything. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, just just anything. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on that? So just a just a kind of a random throw-in question now. Um, do you think that that message, John the Baptist message, would be equally appealing in our day? like now or is it as appealing today and now as it was back then why or why not i'm gonna i'm gonna say that it's not as appealing i mean you see weird people on the street corner yelling repent all the time and you know we as a society kind of just brush them aside and say like that's not really what I, I'm being asked to do. Interesting. Yeah. Sherry? 
you've got uh, some similarities and differences. I would point at stuff like mega churches, where the you know a true message would be lost in the din of you know these these giant churches who are kind of. I mean, I'm gonna lay forth my predilections, putting up false prophets in front of everyone. Okay, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. When you say our whole nation right now politically is kind of going through this, uh, going through, you mean in terms of a repentance so a group of people being over here and another, like we're moving out of something, trying to find something else. Yeah, so I certainly think that not just here, but we've seen around the world, there seems to be uh, more of that happening. True. Yeah, that's a good thought. I don't think the, the message would be as well received today, because I think today there's this culture, at least here in the, in the United States, there's this culture that everyone's an individual and everyone, uh, what's right for one person may not be right for another person. And there's no sense of unity. There's no sense of I belong to overall. I'm just saying overall, there's, there doesn't seem to be a sense of we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. That's my take. I think that um, when I think about whether or not it'd be well received today, you see a lot of people uh, with everything that's going on saying, stay focused, um, stop being distracted about everything going on and really pay attention and go back to your Bible and look at the prophecies that we've heard about that may or may not be in displayed right now. So stay focused on that and not focused on everything else. And I, I think I hear and see a lot of that. Don't be distracted, stay focused. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah. Do we, I mean, if somebody to us walked up to us tomorrow and they were, you know, a guest on this and they heard this idea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How would we explain repentance to someone who had no experience of, of Christianity? What? If we were explaining to them, what is John the Baptist asking for in his repentance? How would we define that for someone? In our well, the, the, the Greek word for repentance just simply means a change of mind. Okay. It's changing your mind. That's that's simple, you know, that's all it is, is just changing your mind, taking what you're thinking now and turning around and, and, you know, do something, you know, thinking something else, you know, or not. Yeah. Except, you know, accepting something new and, you know, hopefully somebody would come up with something inspiring and biblical to, to actually be presenting, Hey, this is what you can focus on. Okay. That's good. So a change of mind. Any, is there, is, is it, more than that in in practical terms in terms of does that change of mind have to result in something an action being different i think that they have to stop thinking that there's time to change okay we kind of have this thing that it's so far off and so i don't have to change today i have all this time before i have to make a change but when we talk about repentance is recognizing that that's a, a right now this second decision to always be repentant and not thinking, oh, I can do that later because I have plenty of time to take care of that. So not just changing your mind, changing your behavior and changing your heart. Yeah, and almost a sense of urgency if I hear you right, right? We can't wait anymore, okay? 
Good. I mean, when I read verse one, you know, because of the reference to the kingdom of heaven, the thought that comes to my mind is of changing your allegiance. I like that. Reverting your allegiance to back to where it's supposed to be. So the king is coming. So turn direction, pledge your allegiance to the king. That's excellent. I love that. I I love that specifically in this context. Now, notice, I do think it's important. uh, Well, maybe maybe it's not much important to me, but it is important to Matthew, but I guess we might miss it if we're not careful. Um, Of all the important things that Matthew could have said in his introduction here, notice he takes quite a bit of time. Well, I don't want to say quite a bit of time. He goes out of his way to include his description of his clothing and I know that Sherry touched on it a little bit here. Um, what, it, what is that all about? Why would Matthew go out of his way? Or I don't know, maybe we don't say out of his way, but why do you think he specifically includes this description of what he looks like, what he eats, all of that bit? Any ideas other than to make him look kind of odd? I would go back to your opening thing about talking about the royals. Okay. Because the royals are you know, dressed, got all this money and they've got everything, Mm -hmm. but they still have, uh, let's see what the technical term, crappy lives. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I gotcha. Yeah. Versus uh, focusing on what's real. That's true. I like that. What's real has nothing to do with all that trappings. Yeah. Here's a simple man eating. um, And I think some of you have heard me tell before that, um, my my mentor Len Sweet has a um, a thing that he does when he gets on a plane as part of his randomization rituals where um, he just walks into a, a bookstore at the airport <clears throat> and just grabs a book and a magazine typically not a book so much magazines um, and one of them was a food magazine a few years back and it talked about how in the day of of Christ that locust and honey was considered like a um, a specialty I mean it was we think of it as oh he's out there just eating grubs but actually people paid really good money to eat that kind of stuff because it was so dangerous to collect it. So sometimes our, you know, he just says that to us just to make sure that when we're doing our semiotics, we don't naturally think, oh, that's disgusting. It's locust. Well, um, in that day and time, that's like the, the dry land version of a lobster, essentially. Sherry, you were getting ready to say something? Yeah, I, I read somewhere about locusts being, um, uh, nations that have oppressed Israel and he's eating these nations up. I mean, he is, he's devouring them just like, you know, what he is, you know, he's talking about the, you know, the king, this king is coming uh, and stuff like that. He's devouring the depressed, you know, the oppressive nations. But, yeah. And I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, symbolically, I think there's a, there's a real um, potential connection because you're right. The locusts are always the enemies, people coming to to destroy the kingdom, right? And yeah, so that's symbolism. But specifically here, just want us to make sure that we recognize that this is um, Matthew's attempt to directly connect John the Baptist to the prophecy because in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we have, as Sherry said, the description of Elijah, who is wearing that very same clothing, eating that same diet, right? It is directly connecting 
John the Baptist story to Elijah story. And oh, by the way, historically where he's teaching and preaching is the region where Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. So he's he's in that region. He's wearing the same clothing. He's eating the same food. He's baptizing people in that era, right? In this Elijah area where Elijah was ministering. And it's it's definitely connected to Elijah, but it's also um, important because for a Jewish audience, this detail, the fact that John the Baptist is being linked to Elijah is a very significant, um, a very significant prophet in the Old Testament. We understand that. But beyond that, Malachi chapter four and verse five specifically says that there would come before the kingdom comes, there would come someone a second Elijah who would come and who would announce that kingdom. And Jesus would later in Matthew chapter 11 specifically say, I am, um, I'm sorry, that John Baptist, he is the Elijah who is to come. In other words, so Jesus goes back and, and, and validates this idea. And Matthew, again, writing to the Jews is making sure that they understand that this man who's coming preaching this voice in the wilderness is the forerunner of the Messiah. And therefore that repentance, right? That repentance is, is necessary because following on his heels, as Saji said, this King is going to come. One last little bit on that. Also that has to do with the locust and the honey. Again, it could certainly mean what uh, Sherry had suggested, but it's also significant because, um, Jesus was uh, in his role comes as a priest, um, excuse me, John the Baptist in his role comes as a priest. He's the son of Zechariah from Luke chapter one. So he's a priest and they have dietary restrictions. Both of those things, locust and honey are kosher. He's a Nazarite, John the Baptist. That's what Zechariah, I'm sorry, Luke one tells us that he would, Zechariah said he would drink no strong drink. So this whole thing is just symbolizing, yes, he is this prophet, he's from this priestly clan, he is a Nazarite, and lest we be too too specific, I don't know that it's necessarily that this is his exclusive diet, but he's certainly known for eating this, all right? So I want to make sure that he's, we understand that he's not just throwing this in as kind of like, oh, let me paint the picture. He's literally driving home the point. All right. This is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. This is the one, the new Elijah. This is what we read about in Malachi chapter four. This is him. So as we keep going in the passage, um, beginning now, picking up in verse five, it says, people from Jerusalem throughout Judea and all around the Jordan River came to him as they confessed their sins. He baptized them in the Jordan River. Again, I said before, the familiarity of this text might keep us from asking some questions. So my first question as I read that is to ask the question, did people do a lot of baptizing in those days? Um, I think questions like, what did people think about baptism? What did it mean to them? Um, what was John the Baptist trying to do? Any thoughts on that? When you read it, the, or any other questions that come to mind when you read something like that, we just take it as f at face value, but it does raise some questions, right? 
Well, my question to the biblical scholars out there is, did they actually do anything resembling baptism earlier on? Or is this a new ritual Good signifying, question. you know, a break? Excellent. I mean, because yeah. it's a fairly radical ritual. I, I, don't I believe I've that heard that they did. Yeah, the Qumran, there was a whole culture okay. was out in the desert that was, they baptized. Um, I forget who, what were they called? I can't the Essenes, remember. The Essenes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they considered like when, when Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and then Joshua crossing the Jordan River, I don't remember if they really considered that as a baptism of sorts. Yeah, so I think all of you are touching on, and, and all of it is true points. I mean, most of the baptism that day and time up to that history took place as part of te temple rituals for cleansing purposes, right? In order to make yourself cleanse, it was a ritual cleansing. Um, so, but what John the Baptist is doing is something more along the lines of what Phil was suggesting. It's a, it's a, um, a more symbolic beyond just cleansing, like, so I can go in and worship. It is, I think, more akin to what Saji was talking about. It's, it's uh, making a commitment to a new kind of king, a new kind of leadership. I'm going to turn away from my allegiances here, and I'm going to put my allegiance toward this coming Messiah. But I just don't want us to miss the fact that, you know, this is, um, this is something that was going to capture attention. This was this was a big deal in that day and time. People were coming from all over, so much so that it didn't just attract the common folk. I want us to notice as we continue on that it, it brings in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, remember, they are the religious elite of the day, right? So let's look at now when they arrive, and I'm moving us forward here because this is, the I think, really the, the crux of Matthew's uh, inclusion here and why he includes all of those details when we pick up in seven verse seven so not only did the people from jerusalem throughout judea and all around the jordan river come as he said in verse five now he specifically says matthew that many pharisees and sadducees came to be baptized by john now we don't know their motivation at this point could be simply that hey as um as Erica was saying earlier, this is trending and they don't want to be seen as, you know, untrendy. So they're there, but we don't know. So maybe the way that John the Baptist responds to them might give us a clue of what he thinks. So in verse seven, they come to him to be baptized and he says to them, you children of snakes. Okay. Who warns you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Verse eight, produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourself, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stories, excuse me, from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize with water. Those of you who have changed your hearts and lives 
The one who is coming after me is stronger than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks in his hands, he will clean out his threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn. But he will burn the husks with a fire that can't be put out. I remember the Pharisees and Sadducees were considered to be the religious and I mentioned, I failed to mention earlier, the culturally elite. They were considered themselves to be devout, the favored ones of God. And John seems, if I put it nicely, he seems quite gruff with them. Um, I might even say he engages in some name calling. So what do you think John's trying to accomplish here by, by calling the Pharisees, as soon as they show up, he calls them in some of the older translations, a brood of vipers. In ours, it's a children of snakes and other things. What, what is John trying to accomplish there? What is he doing? I mean, is that a way to uh, win friends and influence people? I think it's a shot across the bow. Ooh, how so? Yeah. These are people who are, you know, actually living in concert with Rome. True. People know that. I mean, they're keeping the Jewish religion going, but they're in lockstep with their Roman overlords. He's going, this is no joke. This is not another one of your, you know, surface activities. Okay. I like that. It's the real deal. Yeah. I would also add that, um, like, in other parts of the story, uh, even Jesus accuses them of essentially um, talking the talk, but not really walking the walk. So they claim to be, you know, the holier than thou, you know, the religious elite and, and devout following the law, but they're not living the spirit of it. I like that. That's also yeah, going along the lines of that. I wonder, being the son of Zacchaeus, wouldn't John have grown up around these people and seen probably some of the hypocrisy, some of the duplicity, and he was tired of it? Yeah, that is a great observation. Yes, growing up in the temple, right, as one of these, uh, you know, hand on, right, right, experience with them going, yeah, I've seen it from the inside, and it's it's pretty ugly. You're you're snakes. Couldn't it also be their way of not lessening their influence by saying, "See, we're participating in this, and so that you can still follow our influence and and continue down our path, because we participate in this as well without truly having that change of heart and that change of." life that John the Baptist is calling for? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, that'd be, that's an act of co-opting John's movement. <clears throat> I like that. Co oh, that's excellent. The, to co-opt the movement, right? So you, you bring what could be perceived as an enemy or somebody working against you, and by joining in with them, you've kind of, yeah, you've kind of co-opted and you've taken away some of that power that might be going with it. I like that. True. Do we get the impression that he wants them to repent? I see some of you smiling. Brenda's smiling. I think so when he says produce fruit that shows that you've changed your heart and life. So don't just 
talk about it, be about it. I like that. Yeah. I think he, he wants them to repent, but his hopes are not high for this group of people. Okay. And again, that might tie back to what Luther was saying, right? His experience seeing so much of it at, you know, close up at hand, he has doubts as to whether or not they, they're real. Okay. A familiarity breeds contempt and I like that. He's, he's almost daring them to uh, repent. Yeah. And let me, let me, let me steer at the question this way. So what would, in, in, in his specific, he's telling them to show fruit, what would repentance entail? In other words, what would have to change for these people? Go back and look at that section again in verses um, seven, well, basically start in verse eight and go down. You know, what is it? Now, let me let me zoom you in just to kind of help you into verse nine. Listen to verse nine. Don't even think about saying to yourself, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. I think that's kind of a little bit of a clue for what John the Baptist, what is, what is he expecting them? You know, what is this repentance? What does it look like? Remember, we say repentance is a change of mind, a change of allegiance. I like those two things blended together. So what kind, what would repentance look like based on what he's just kind of thrown out to us there in verse nine? Well, just looking at verse nine, it sounds like they'd been saying to themselves, well, we're part of the covenant. We're part of the promise because Abraham's our father. And John seems to be responding to that thought with, well, if your allegiance is to the covenant, to the promise, then you, you would be producing fruit that shows that. So if, if, if the, if, God is your king, then your, 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 your actions would show that. That's good. Yeah. I don't understand the, the, uh, raising up Abraham's children from these stones. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So you want to take a stab at that? What do you think he's, what do you think he's referring to there when he says, Hey, don't think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. Anybody? It's like they think um, they're special because they used to be. If you can prove your lineage to the founding fathers of Israel, so on and so forth, then you're special. And so um, there, he's saying you're not special because just because you were born from that lineage, God could make the rock be born from that lineage too so that's not a special thing exactly right yeah to be under the covenant of abraham was more than just being a descendant it, it was right. the heart also abraham had a heart that that pursued god and that that's part of the the deal of being under you know being abraham's children then and they weren't demonstrating that essentially he was like you're demonstrating as much as these rocks are demonstrating it yeah thinking about the the covenant and the contract the contract would have had two pieces god was going to take care of his people but the people had a requirement too they had to love god and live justly and i think he's pointing directly to that these people were not living justly they were not doing right by the rest of the people they weren't taking care of the widows and the orphans they were packing away money for other things yeah, I like that. Yeah. Other thoughts about what John the Baptist's repentance 
specifically as he now addresses these Pharisees, these people who are coming to, and I like this, co-opt, right? Any other thoughts on what, what he's expecting from them? Hmm. Kind of, I know this is moving forward a little bit, but I feel like he's comparing them to being the husks and that the husks are covering up the fruit. And what he wants is for them to reveal the fruit, not just their fruit, but everybody else's fruit, rather than covering everything up. Yeah, and I like that connection because um, if you look at what she's referring to, what um, Courtney's referring to, she's looking down a little bit later on in verses 11 and 12, um, verse, specifically verse 12, the shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks he will clear out his threshing area and bring the weed into his barn. He will burn the husk with a fire. I think you're uh, exactly right, uh, Courtney, making that connection. He's, 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 he's been, without saying so, like, okay, you Pharisees, this is you. The implication is strong enough for them to understand it. And those are potentially dire, like those statements are potentially dire, right? An axe is poised to cut down trees that don't bear fruit. Remember, he's already told them, um, you're not producing fruit. And now he's saying an axe is poised to cut down. A farmer is ready with a winnowing fork to separate wheat from the chaff. Now we, probably Lynette is the, most, is the one most likely to connect with this particular image since her family is in that business. But we see it in Uganda when they're trying to get the dried beans and they're beating the I mean, I just about said crap. I can't say crap online, can I, Chris? No. Oops, I can't say crap. They're almost beating the 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 tar out of these these beans, and it's a very violent process to separate out the wheat, or in this case, the beans from all of that dried out. And there's going to be an unquenchable unquenchable fire. Why do you think that uh, John the Baptist? includes this here as kind of the the wrap-up of his message to um to the pharisees and the sadducees i think it's a message of get on board or get the hell out of the way right okay and in the in the past i mean the pharisees sadducees have put so many extra layers on top of the the what it is to follow God. And so it almost is like all of their rules and stuff is that husk that you need to remove to get down to the basics. I like that. Uh, Ten commandments of, you know, of uh, just those 10 things, you know? Yeah. I love that, Dan. That's great that all that chaff, remember, because Jesus later on, when he's asked to summarize what is, if you have to summarize the law and the prophets, which is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were experts at doing, right? We're going to summarize this, all of these 365 rules for this and another thousand added on. And Jesus said, oh, love your Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself, right? That's cutting through the chaff right that's cutting down the trees the people who think they're so important that without them the whole system falls apart yeah good any other thoughts on um go ahead Somebody. david yeah there you are Mike. Sorry. Uh, david um i was gonna say like that maybe it's a picture of it's not like it's not unlike earthly kings you either you know, if you're the king, you're with me. If I'm saying I'm the king, you're either with me or you're not. And if you're not, you're not loyal to me, 
we cut you down. And maybe that's a picture that they could understand where you either repent and get your lives right with God or, or you'll be at the end of that act. Mm, yeah. It's probably true. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Seem, let me ask this question and I didn't really, I don't have it in my notes here, but it pops up in my mind. Um, does it seem like John the Baptist is being overly harsh? Can I use that word overly harsh? Does it seem like there might be a better approach to this in your mind, anybody? Or does it just seem like, well, no, this is totally appropriate for the situation and the context? When has ever a prophet, prophet not been harsh? That's true. <laughs> it's true. I thought about that. That's true. Excellent. Well, and I think maybe he knows that that's how they have to hear it. You know, I mean, dealing with children, you can't deal with them the same way. They don't hear things the same way. So even if you want a certain outcome, you have to approach everybody kind of differently just because that's how they take things in and process things. Gotcha. That's true. Yeah, I wonder about the, the 28 years that are not mentioned here, what the story, the family stories, when um, John and Jesus and the families would get together um, retelling the story around the Christmas time. Um, how how steeped in, in that they were. Um, so we pick up right when John is at his fieriest, but I, I can't imagine this was one that he turned around and was like, I'm going out to the wilderness. He was probably making his way out there more and more often. I think you're right. It, it kind of makes me wonder if he really even expected uh, this group, particular group of people to even heed his words because because uh, he, he, he put them on the spot in front of everybody else. And you don't do that when you're trying to diplomatically get someone to understand your message and follow your message. I kind of think there might have been a part of him saying that they're already lost. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I agree with Phil that, um, yeah, when was, a, when was a prophet ever diplomatic? Doesn't, it's not really in the job description, usually. But, but didn't, didn't other prophets generally just speak to everyone in particular, you know, in general, whereas John is specifically pointing out this one particular group of people, calling them out in front of everyone else? Um, I mean, I mean, there are obviously there are times in Scripture in First Testament prophecies when it is more general, but there's there's more than one instance where it's like you king or you nation or you group of people, you better watch out. This is getting ready to happen. And I guess the reason I'm asking that question is um, so under what kind of circumstances this is now where we bring home this message to us today in the 21st century. So under what kind of circumstances, if any. Are we as Christians justified in speaking as harshly to others as John did here? I mean, is there ever an instance that we have that kind of um, responsibility or right? Or are we expected to behave differently? I think um, one concept that uh, I have tried to wrap my head around over the years is like Christian discipline where, um, you know, the, the 
the reason for correcting someone else's behavior is not out of contempt, but out of love. Um, so I think we are probably called to discipline each other um, when we are not engaging in actions that are commensurate with our belief. And that's part of why we, we covenant together, right? We make, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in a couple of minutes, about partnership covenants, right? We, we invite that kind of um, speaking into our lives and recognizing that sometimes we need that, right? Kick in the pants for lack of a better term, right? I like that. Yeah. I have a question. Mike, go ahead. Is that idea of Christian discipline reserved for those that have relationships with whomever they're disciplining? Yeah, yes. From from a from a scripture point of view, when we enter into a covenant relationship to live under the spiritual authority of elders and leaders, yeah, that speaks to that specific group. It doesn't open us up to, in my opinion, this is my opinion and our denominational opinion, that doesn't open us up to stepping out to somebody else and going, okay, so you know, now you come and stand before us and you have to answer to us as a group, as opposed to someone who has covenant made a partnership covenant with us, um, uh, allowing that kind of speaking into their lives. Yeah. So we're, we're not the Westboro Baptist church. Uh, no, <laughs> but that's, that's an example of, yeah, just the opposite where they're saying we have, you know, this broader. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For those of you who remember those. I also think that, um, when I think about this, the visual, some, when we talked about this wheat and visual, it's something that you would do every day. So every single time I experience something that has to do with wheat, I'm going to think about the fact that I am capable of uncovering um, those gifts and talents and having a change of heart and a change of life. So although it seems harsh, I think he also wraps it in love and gives them a pro provides them with the way out by saying you can change your heart and you can change your life. And then you don't have this, this burning with the husk in the fire. And I think when we think about today, we're always trying to soft pedal mm. instead of just saying it. And, and if you soft pedal, then people don't always take you seriously and they think it's not a big of deal. And I think by sometimes you just have to be direct and it's not what you say, it's how you say it. But that directness alludes to the seriousness of what you're trying to convey. I like that. I mean, I've seen pastors and elders do this and it be effective. And I've seen pastors and elders do this and it cause a bad response. And so, you know, my thought is, you know, it's the nuclear option. Use it if you feel it's necessary. Just keep in mind know what usually happens to prophets because that may happen to you too. That's true. So that's true. Yeah. yeah. Any other final thoughts, Jody? I think you're muted, Jody. I can't hear you. Somehow you're still muted, Jody. Ta ta. All right, well, you try to get unmuted. Sorry, uh, Mike. Uh, Mike, it's really a question going back to the earlier passage of John's camel hair garments. If he's eating uh, a, a delicacy of locusts and honey, 
you know, I've always pictured John being this raggedy, unkept guy out in the wilderness. And, you know, he's wearing, you know, barely anything according, you know, he just wrapped himself in camel hair. But, you know, I got to thinking, I have a camel hair sports coat and it's pretty nice. <laughs> uh, if, if, if uh, he's eating a delicacy that people pay a lot of money for, could he also be wearing fine, a fine camel hair uh, cloak as well? Um, well, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, downplay. I, I don't think I could speak, anybody could speak to the quality of it, but it is symbolic. It would have been symbolic of his position as a prophet. It would have been, you know, a direct connection to it. So yeah, we think of it as this raggedy old thing, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because remember, this is the same thing that, you know, David Knight spoke about when he preached, I guess it was last year, maybe, you know, the cloak of Elijah being placed, the mantle, the cloak being put on Elisha, you know, we don't imagine that as being this, you know, ripped up, you know, kind of nasty looking thing, right? But that's just the image that we've, I think that some of that, um, and my wife is sitting across from me because we don't have bandwidth for her to be on, but you know, when we tell the kid's story, that's how it's usually portrayed, right? He's wearing like, like skin, animal skins, and he's looking pretty rough. And, and, right. And so that's how we probably portrayed it. But that may not be accurate. It's probably I'm not. I'm just wondering to what degree his appearance actually attracted people, not it just, his, not just his message, but right. Oh, look at this guy eating locusts and honey and, and dressed in maybe a fine yeah. Yeah. camel hair yeah exactly i think some people are seeing that this is this is elijah this is elijah returned this is exactly what malachi said would happen hey it's happening it's happening yeah certainly a sense of that is drawing people yeah i'm sorry jody we couldn't get you squared away Sorry. Well, I'll have uh, maybe David Knight can reach out to you this week and we'll try to figure out what's going on because um, I don't know which device you're using or whatnot because normally we can hear you. Um, but for some reason today we can't. Um, David, you think you could reach out to her at some point and see if we can try to figure out what device she's, he's giving me the thumbs up. Excellent. All right. Good. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.